In some ways, this is like one of my least favorite sermons to preach because, um, you know, newsflash, dating isn't in the Bible. And if dating's not in the Bible, it's hard to know, like, what text do you go to to talk about dating? But in another sense, um, everything in the Bible is about dating. In other words, everything that we've talked about in this series on relationships um, has to weigh in and bear upon how we go about dating. And so, um, you know, we're going to talk about it because, you know, you guys are college students and we're doing a series on relationships and we can't uh, avoid this topic. And there's a lot of really bad Christian books on this. Now, I'm going to tell you this. We're going to have two weeks that we're going to do dating. I'm going to lay out some principles this week, but it probably will stir up some questions. Next week is all about the questions that might get stirred up and particularly about what's wrong with all the bad Christian books and memes about dating. So we'll talk some about that. But um, on our Instagram, Belmont REF Instagram, Wendy's going to put a box, question box. So if you've got particular questions, um, you can throw those in there tonight or we'll do it um, during the week as well. I already have a bunch of questions that I plan to address, but it, you guys might come up with something that I hadn't thought of that would be good to talk about. All right. So here's how we're going to go about this tonight. We're going to talk about the challenge of dating. We're going to talk about uh, is dating biblical or what can we learn from the Bible about this sort of stuff. Um, a really important topic, what is the purpose of dating? Because I think a lot of the, um, the mistakes that people make in thinking about it um, go back to that, maybe a misunderstanding of the purpose. And then uh, what I call pious, hopefully pious advice. Um, next week, we'll, we'll do more of that kind of stuff. And then we'll talk about fear. Because I, I think um, there was an article that came out years ago basically arguing that dating was dead um, dating was dead because people were really afraid and so they would rather kind of hang out in packs and kind of just sort of, you know, hang out together and whatnot. And, and what's interesting is around that same time, there was a movement in the Christian world uh, called the courtship movement, which basically was like, if you court instead of date, then you won't have all these problems uh, that other people have out in the secular world. And the more you looked into that, it was like fear was driving every approach. Uh, so we're going to talk about fear uh, at the end tonight because God has something to say about that as well. Let me pray and then we will talk some about the challenge of dating and why it's even a difficult topic to talk about uh, in our day and age. But let's pray first. Lord, we do ask that you would um, be with us, help us, help us to, to listen, help us to, um, to honor you. Um, and Lord, if there are things that that I share tonight that are not uh, of you or in line with your scripture, may they fall away. Um, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I think one of the big challenges, of course, is how few really good model relationships we've had to look at. You know, years ago, I'm sure it's different now, but about 20 years ago, there was a study done. What was the number one way that middle school girls know what to do on a date? Do you know what it was? television. And the number two way was other middle school girls, which is basically television and then television once removed, right? So, you know, that's probably not where you've gotten most of your views about dating. And yet, 
Who knows? I mean, there are as many opinions as there are influencers in TikTok videos, right? And so there are all kinds of ideas. I have teenagers, right? I've got, you know, one kid that's just finished college and two that are in college. And I hear all kinds of pontificating about dating and about relationships. And it's always just kind of amusing, sometimes a little sad. Um, to hear people putting themselves up as experts when everybody is kind of scared to death and there are no rules. So the lack of good models is one of the big challenges, right? The divorce rate, even if your parents haven't been divorced, probably good friends of yours have. It's just affected us in so many ways. There's so much fear. There's so much fear driving a commitment to be in control of our lives in such a way that we can reduce all risk of being hurt to an absolute minimum. Of course, I have to tell you, it's really impossible to ask somebody out and then pretend that it didn't really matter to you what they said. So as much as you would love to kind of guard your heart, there's just no way to get around putting yourself out there. C.S. Lewis has this great quote in um, The Four Loves his book, The Four Loves, where he talks about, you know, if you love anything at all, your heart will be broken. And really the only place where you can be safe from the dangers of love is hell. So I, to see myself, not, I don't ever want to be a matchmaker, but I'm usually a cheerleader for relationships because it's hard. It's hard to put yourself out there. It's hard to risk um, embarrassment or being awkward, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and anytime some fearful, sinful person decides to give it a try, I'm usually like, go for it. Um, knowing that it's hard, right? Um, I, I think though for a lot of us, especially by the time you're in college, maybe there's a lot of sin and shame and guilt from things that you've done. And I, I think in some cases, the legacy of the purity culture has made this worse. If you don't know what the purity culture is, count yourself blessed. I have to confess that I literally played in a rock band, Christian rock band, and we played some of those love weights um, things with Josh McDowell where everybody made their purity pledges. I didn't write clue in what was even going on at the time, but now I look back at it, I'm like, oh, I should never have been a part of that. Um, you remember, do any of you guys remember that? True love weights and the purity, some of you might have purity, wing, purity wings and all that stuff. But basically what it does is basically says like the chief goal, particularly for you women, is to keep yourself pure. And if you aren't able to do that, well then you're damaged goods, all right? Not only that, it makes promises that if you do keep yourself pure, you'll have mind-blowing sex when you finally do get married. And all of that stuff is just not true. Right? So it overpromises and it also fills people with guilt and shame and a sense that if I've screwed up, then I could never possibly deserve a God honoring relationship. My wife, you know, has a little sermonette that she gives to people when she's talking with them in that kind of setting, feeling like that, and it's this better single than settle. But some people, I think, settle because they feel that they've broken their vows and they've ruined their chances at actually having a relationship with somebody who would be really great. Don't let that kind of shame and guilt drive you, right? None of us are without sin. Uh, none of us are without sin when it comes to relationships. Um, but another factor that's going on that probably you don't notice because this is just the world you live in, but you see, as the culture has shifted from a traditional culture to modern culture to postmodern culture, the primary relationship, the one most important, has shifted. 
And that affects thinking about dating, because in a tradition culture, where you really get your sense of identity and your kind of security is from your family, right? In the modern world, it's from your lover. That's the most important uh, relationship. But in the postmodern world, friends are way more important because lovers come and go. So what, imagine if you decide that maybe you have romantic interest in somebody that you consider your best friend. That's a much bigger risk in a postmodern world where friends are your most important relationships than it was in previous eras, right? It's difficult to risk losing a friend by trying to take the relationship to the next level. Of course, a lot of people, I think, particularly when they're still in college, maybe don't realize that if you don't marry your best friend of the opposite sex, they probably won't be your best friend for the rest of your life. That's just reality, right? But sometimes we're not ready to embrace that reality yet, I suppose. Um, the other, another challenge, I think, is um, the way a lot of, and I think appropriately, gender stereotypes have been challenged. So that's good because a lot of the stereotypes are really oppressive and unhelpful and unbiblical, right? But it also means that when a lot of those things get thrown out, also a lot of traditions get thrown out. And so you're basically in a world where a lot of the rules are no longer rules. And, and so you're kind of like walking into situations sometimes where people have very different expectations. For instance, you know, um, who pays, right? If, if you don't know the answer to that, how are you gonna figure it out before you ask somebody out? And you might be like, well, if I ask, then I should pay. And the other person might be like, well, no way, you know, because we're not dating yet, so I'm not gonna let you pay. There, you, and, and, you know, all that kind of thing. It's like just one of the many examples. Or, you know, I know this one, I bet if we surveyed people in this room, we would get a number of different opinions. If somebody asks you out, do you go out with them even if you're not interested, just to let them down easy? I know I've talked to different people in this room who have different opinions about that, right? But usually we try to communicate through subtle actions rather than actually talking plainly and then everybody's confused. It happens all the time. Remember this, there are always two interpretations to every event. There are always two interpretations and depending on how secure you feel, you'll either put a bad spin or a good spin on whatever happened, right? Um, I, I love that song uh, by the Doobie Brothers, What a Fool Believes. Go back and listen to that, right? You know, it's an amazing song, right? He's basically like trying to reminisce about something that never really was. What a fool believes, right? And sometimes that, you know, you're just blind to reality because of what you're hoping for, or you can be blind to reality because of what you're afraid of or what you're ashamed of. Um, so I, I think that's another challenge. There are no common agreed rules. And then expectations have changed. I, I think this is interesting. You know, in the 1930s, in the 1930s, over one third of Americans married somebody who lived within five blocks of them. Now that's not the way it works today. Um, and, and one of the things that's interesting, as people have become more mobile, and also as technology and dating apps have opened up a whole world of possibilities, it's also conversely put more and more pressure on you finding the perfect soulmate. And, and I think that what you find, and particularly, I mean, perfectionism is just rampant. 
Perfectionism applied to relationships is usually a disaster in every sort of way. Now, this guy, um, Aziz Ansari, I know he got accused of some bad stuff. I still thought his book, Modern Romance, was interesting. Because he's kind of, now he's coming from a traditional Indian culture with arranged marriages and looking at like Tinder and other apps and trying to kind of wrestle with various approaches. And it's a fascinating book. And I, I like this quote. He, I think he's onto something here. He says, I thought the big changes, he's talking about when he went into this study uh, to write this book and talking to all these social scientists. He did a lot of good research for this book. He said, I thought the big changes in romance were obvious technological developments like smartphones, online dating, and social media sites. As I dug deeper, however, I realized that the transformation of our romantic lives cannot be explained by technology alone. Today, people spend years of their lives on a quest to find the perfect person, a soulmate. The tools we use on this search are different, but what has really changed is our desires and even more strikingly, the underlying goals of the search itself. I'm not sure the Bible teaches the idea that there's one perfect soulmate for you and like the great task of your life is to figure out who that is. As a matter of fact, the only really way to know what God's will is for you as far as somebody to marry is to put a ring on their finger. Other than that, it's speculation. And that's just reality. There's going to be no lightning bolt from heaven that's going to tell you this is for sure. But you know what? If you say I do, you know that was God's will. You can look back and know, right? But this kind of perfect search or searching for the perfect person I think is a, is a real problem. Um, maybe the expectations are a problem the technology can't solve. Uh, and the technology, and this is what Aziz is getting at, actually encourages a consumeristic view of relationships that plagues our culture in so many ways. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge, isn't it? Trying to, to think about dating in our biblical, or sorry, in our world today. Um, but let's ask this question, is dating even biblical? Is dating even biblical? Um, it's not biblical. People in the Bible didn't date the way we do in our world. But does that mean that dating is forbidden? Absolutely not. And this is where I want to say something about Christian freedom. Christian freedom is a really big deal. And it's a really big deal when people try to make laws where God has not made laws. Never, never confuse wisdom for laws. Even if you do get married one day, you're going to have to wrestle with this reality. There's the way your family did it and the way the other person's family did it. And if either of those become law, boy, you're gonna have a hard time in your marriage. Both of those should be sources of wisdom and then you guys have to decide how are we gonna manage things in our family. Don't make laws where the Bible hasn't made Laws. Don't call something sin that the Bible doesn't call sin because that is usurping God's role. But when I read all the various books about dating that come from Christians, I find they're filled with rules for living rather than principles for you to wrestle with. And that's never the biblical approach. As a matter of fact, there's two verses next to each other in Proverbs. One verse that says, Answer a fool 
according to his folly. And right next to it is a verse that says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Now, many people read the Proverbs like little rules for life. That's not how you're supposed to read the Proverbs. The Proverbs actually, like all the wisdom literature, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and the Psalms, are there to nuance the law, lest you kind of fall into, if you do the right things, you get what you want kind of approach to life. A, a simpleton approach to life is what Dan Allender, a Christian counselor, calls it. No, the Bible puts those two verses next to each other there on purpose. It's not sloppy editing from some person that didn't really pay much attention as they were putting the book of Proverbs together. No, they're there together so that you will do what when you are confronted with a fool? Well, you won't just look for the rule to apply. You'll look to God for wisdom and what to do. And that's how the book of Proverbs start. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And therefore, you don't have a rule for how to deal with fools. You have to wrestle, you have to pray, you might even have to ask your friends, how do you think I should deal with this situation, right? But we always wanna reduce things to nice, simple little rules, like how far can I go sexually on a date? People are always asking that. Like, why do you wanna know that? So you can get as close as possible? Why don't you think about what's the purpose of sex? And what are you saying by it? And what do you intend to say? And are you saying something with your body that you also are saying with your words and with your commitment? We'll talk about that more when we get to sex, which we'll do a couple weeks on, or at least one. Um, anyway, so dating is not biblical, um, but it's not unbiblical. And um, this, I think, in many ways is where the courtship movement kind of entered in, because there were all these people years ago advocating that courtship was the biblical method, and it was the easy solution to all the problems of dating. And I'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But what was really interesting is the Bible never says that courtship is the model, right? And some of the biblical proof, I remember one book in particular looked at the example of Ruth and Boaz. Maybe some of you are familiar with that story. Um, there's this lady, Ruth, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Um, well, Ruth's um, husband uh, dies, right, if I recall. And they basically, these two women are kind of together, and they're in pretty desperate straits. And there's this guy, Boaz, who's the kinsman redeemer. And he has this field, and they're allowed to glean from the field. That's what the poor were able to do in Israel. They were allowed to, to work to support themselves. And um, at one point, her mother-in-law encourages her to go lay at Boaz's feet. And that's what this book is saying. See, this is courtship because her mother-in-law basically encouraged and was involved in the process. And I'm like, I don't think the person writing this book understands that that's a rather sexually suggestive thing that was going on there. Um, so people like look for biblical examples and end up misinterpreting things sometimes, right? If you wanted to look for the biblical model, it would probably be arranged marriages. That's generally what they did in most of those cultures. But again, the Bible doesn't say that's what you have to do, right? So if the Bible doesn't lay it down as a rule, don't make it a rule, all right? So we have freedom to date, or you have freedom to court if you want, but we need to wrestle with how Christians should date. Because our relationship with God, if you're a Christian, our rela your relationship with God should drive you to date in a distinctive way. And we need to thoughtfully engage what the Bible has to say and think about how it should be lived out in relationships, right? Because frankly, the only categories that the Bible has for how you relate to other people in the body of Christ 
our brothers and sisters in the Lord, fathers and mothers, engaged couples and married couples. That's it. So this in-between kind of stage, dating, is not in there. And it's kind of a weird stage, isn't it? Because at one level, it's kind of a commitment. And it, it's so fascinating. We're so like hung up on commitment and wanting to be very careful with our commitment. So like the way people carefully nuance every stage, we're going out, but we're not dating. Okay, then now we're boyfriend and girlfriend. Now we're Facebook official. I guess we don't really do that anymore. You know, but <laughs> I, I mean, it's just the careful nuances of all those stages is just really fascinating. But it probably speaks to, um, I think this kind of weirdness that is dating, it's kind of a commitment, but it's also kind of an evaluation, right? And that's just kind of an odd thing. All right, so what is the purpose of dating? Here, here's, you know, maybe you've never heard this, I want you to consider this. The purpose of dating has to be the purpose of humankind, to certainly to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when you think about relating to other people, you are called in every relationship to be blessed and to be a blessing. That's the purpose of dating. That's the purpose of covenant friendship. That's the purpose of every relationship you have, to be blessed and to be a blessing. Now, I think that if you think of it that way, it really helps. Because for a lot of people, they're thinking the purpose of dating is to find somebody to marry. And that just puts all this pressure for one thing, and, and it's almost like it gets the cart before the horse. You're like, well, I, 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 I think this person's pretty cool, and I'd like to spend more time with them, but I don't know yet if I would marry them, and so I don't know if we should date. It's like, well, how are you gonna figure it out? It's like a catch-22, right? But if you believe that the purpose of spending intentional time with somebody, which I guess is what you would call a date, like setting a date in the calendar and deciding to do something together, if you think the purpose of that is to be blessed and to be a blessing, then go for it. Do it, right? Um, you don't have to have it all figured out. And you don't have to label every relationship you have that doesn't end in marriage as a failure. See, I, I think that there are lots of relationships you may have, friendships, maybe dating relationships, um, that God will use to help you grow up and to teach you about his love. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna marry that person. And you don't have to look at those uh, as a negative. But I would wish that you would relate to one another in dating in ways that you could one day look that other person's spouse in the eye and know that you honored this person. I think that's a good goal for a Christian relationship. So a couple of pious advice things, and uh, these may just stir up some other questions. So we'll put that box there on our Instagram, right? Here, here's the first. Try to live in line with reality. What do I mean by that? Well, James 4, 13 through 16, talks about sometimes the way we say things glibly exposes that we're not connecting the dots with who God is and how he works. What James says is basically like, don't say, I'm gonna go so-and-so next week and I'm gonna do business in this place. He's basically like, say, and he doesn't just mean tack on these words like a little magic formula, but really believe in your heart, if the Lord wills, I will do this. 
In other words, don't make plans and dreams without considering that the Lord may have a different plan and a different dream, okay? Uh, Like you don't even know about tomorrow. You don't know if the Lord will give you tomorrow. So be careful about how you speak about the future, how you guard your heart. Be careful about the expectation that you have for who God might bring in your life and want you to marry. I remember um, when Wendy and I went to our first premarital counseling appointment with a guy named Mike Smith. Bless Mike, he was great. Um, He wrote the book that I still use for premarital uh, counseling. But his first question is, Kevin, why do you feel called to marry Wendy? I was like, oh, that's interesting. And and he he asked it that way very specifically because he, he wasn't Say, like, I remember, you know, two students years ago saying, you know, that we want to get married. And I said, why? And they said, well, because we just get along so well. And I was like, do you have a better reason? Because, <laughs> like, that may mean that you're such people pleasers that you never speak honestly to each other. Right? Okay, you get along. But if iron's supposed to sharpen iron, I'm not sure that's the goal. Right? It kind of blew their mind a little bit. Um, but I, I think what Mike, when Mike asked that question, what he was basically trying to, to expose is a lot of people kind of have either a written or kind of an unwritten list of qualities they're looking for. And the longer you kind of evaluate different people, you've kind of been like, man, I've got these 10 things I'm looking for. Um, I've never met anybody that has more than like six or seven, but man, she's like eight, maybe even nine. And he's like, if you take that approach, it's almost like shopping for a used car. Like, I finally found a good deal. I better jump on it, right? Or put a ring on it, as Beyonce would say, right? (laughs) So I I think that there's like, he's basically saying we approach this in a very consumeristic way. But when you ask the question, why do you feel called to marry Wendy? Well, then I think back to the way the Lord had knit our lives together. At one point, she said, the Lord has given you the key to my heart when I didn't uh, mean or intend that to happen. That there was a sense in which I can see this person's sin, but I also see that God has given me ability to speak grace into their life in a way that helps them, right? In other words, you want to you find somebody that sees your sin, but also envisions your glory and sees themselves as implicated in, in God's work in your life. And, and that's more of a sense of calling, more of a sense. And, and so in my, in, when we got married, right, I was already a pastor. So I already have a lot of women that I'm called to care for. But what was different about Wendy is a sense of woe is me if I don't follow God's leading to care for this one person. Now, I do a crappy job of it. There's no doubt about that. But that's what draws you into a place of a feeling of responsibility more than, hey, I just won the lottery and I better, you know, seal the deal here. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, But but it was a helpful question for me. And we ask that question all the time, though now it's kind of ruined. Uh, It won't have any shock value if you come do premarital counseling with us because you've already heard what that question is about. Um, But here's another principle. Matthew 5, 37, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, in the context, he's talking about basically don't just swear oaths to get people's trust. You should live in such a way that your integrity is seen by all. 
And when we're talking about dating, here's where I want to kind of push in on this particular principle. Your actions and your words should be consistent. This, you know, cuts a couple different ways. It means like the undefined hanging out where everybody's like they're basically dating. They just don't want to admit it. Um, you shouldn't do that. You should talk about it. I'm a big fan of talking through weirdness. Um, and there are some people that are too afraid to do that. I don't mean talk through weirdness, have constant define the relationship talks in a manipulative way. Like, I don't want to risk putting time into this relationship if you don't like me too. That's more manipulative. I mean, just kind of talking through weirdness, particularly if there's somebody that you're already in a relationship with or friendship with. Uh, don't be doing things with your body or even with your actions or with your time that really express, I'll be here for you, I'm committed to you, if you're not really. You know what I mean? In other words, you say things with your actions that you may not have reflected on whether that matches what you're saying. It's, like, you know, it's basically every awful romantic comedy, you know, where they're like, no, 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 but actually with their actions, they obviously like each other and are treating each other even like they have ownership over each other in some ways that's not appropriate <laughs> don't be naive or try to pretend that dating um, or regular hanging out with people is meaningless right and sometimes people get and, and you know sometimes people have a right to think that you are intending something by what you're doing even when you're not saying it. And I'll just tell you, like this is the theme of almost every bad romantic comedy is this kind of this vision that guys are so clueless they don't even know their own heart. And I think it sets women up a lot of times to feel like, well, I know he says this, but his actions show that he really means this, he just doesn't even know it. Like that's the theme of almost every romantic comedy, isn't it? And I don't know if that's very helpful. I think you should ask uh, people to be honest and to be consistent in what they say and what they do, right? That's what we should be like as a Christian community. Um, we have to honor others and be honest toward them. Um, you shouldn't relate sexually to people like you're married, all right? We'll talk about this uh, again when we talk about sex, but I, I, I'm firmly convinced that the Bible says sexuality is given for you to say, I belong to you, not to say you're hot, or I like you, or I want to have fun with you. It's a way God says, I belong to you. And if that's not what you mean by it, it will always, it will always come back to hurt. Intimacy, physical and otherwise, should be commiserate with the level of commitment in the relationship. Now, I think this is a particular trap for Christians. Because I think Christians feel like, if, if I know God and I know the gospel, I should be open and honest about everything. And sometimes the honesty and the vulnerability goes beyond what's really wise with regard to the commitment level of the relationship. You don't have to tell somebody all of your deepest, darkest secrets just because you're a Christian. They may not have a right to that. And you should be careful with that, right? And I know sometimes People read into that, even like, oh my gosh, he shared this with me. He must really, really like me. No, he may just be naive and not realize how that communicates, right? And vice versa, okay? Um, dating is not marriage. 
As a matter of fact, it's not even a good test for what marriage will be like. Because there's something, it's not just like marriage is like a little bit more intense version of dating. It's a completely different relationship because the commitment is solid. And there are some things that you shouldn't share probably until you have that kind of level of commitment, right? You should just be careful. Um, well, like I said, I, I think the, the real challenge, and maybe I've just you know, built this up even more to dating in so many ways in the world and the church is fear and perfectionism. So let's talk a bit about how God deals with fear um, in the Bible. And to that, well, I wanna look at this passage which I have there in your outline. It's 1 John chapter 4. I think this is one of the most important passages in the Bible. I like to call this a paradigm-shifting passage that can maybe turn upside down your way of understanding the Christian life, especially verse 16. But I'm going to start reading at verse 10. So follow along as I read. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Notice it doesn't say we know and rely on the love we have for God, because that is not reliable. But we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Forever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now that's, that's a pretty big call, that command. It doesn't mean that you just get to love people you want to date. <laughs> Trust me, people notice the way you treat other people that you're not romantically interested in. And it builds a sort of insecurity in people when they see that you only talk to the people that you're romantically interested in, that you're only nice to them. People notice that. We're called to love everyone. And we love because God loved us. This is fascinating. I think I've used this image before. But we are like the moon, not like the sun. We don't generate love. We reflect it. It doesn't say we love God because he first loved us, though that's certainly true. It's actually bigger than that. All love for image bearers of God is rooted and comes from God's love for us. Because unless God's love has filled you up, you can't sacrifice for others. 
because you're too needy. You're too needy yourself. It's only when you see yourself as fabulously wealthy that you can forgive and that you can sacrifice and that you can live in a way that you don't need to get all of your needs met by another person. He calls us to focus on his sacrificial love. I love verse 10. This is love, not that we love God. The, our love for God is so weak, you can't even include it in the definition of love. That's what he's saying. This is love, not, in the Greek it's that word, ook, which I love. This is love, ook, not that we love God. Don't even think about your love as contributing anything to the definition of what love is. Isn't that amazing? but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So it's just the love God has for those who need an atoning sacrifice, who aren't lovely. There's something about the security that comes from that that you can get nowhere else. So it's one thing to know you're loved by somebody that sees you at their worst. That's what the love of God is like. And he sees you at your worst in ways you don't even have eyes to see. And yet he loves you. That actually gives you courage to be honest about how bad you are at loving people. And one thing this Christian counselor Dan Allender said, I'll never forget, is it's awful to be loved by people who are convinced they're good at loving. <laughs> you want to be loved by people who are constantly crying out to God, say, give me your love for this other person. I always say this when I do weddings. Um, that, that we, you can't possibly dress up and go through all of this kind of rigmarole and ceremony, ceremony to raise two sinners' emotions to such a level that it can, will sustain them for 50 years, 60 years, right? You hope to picture the love of God, and the only way you should enter into a relationship, a serious relationship, is praying that God would give you his love for this other person. Because that will never run out. Yours definitely will. And so what are we told to know and rely on? His love for us. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the book of Hosea, God says to his people, Ephraim, that's kind of like a pet name that God has for his people. He says, your love for me, O Ephraim, is like the morning mist. That means as soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. So if our love for God, who is perfect, is like the morning mist. How can we possibly hope to love another person, let alone another sinner? It's only if God gives us his love and we cry out to it and we repent when we fall short of it. God's love has to be known to be relied on. So, I hope that you think and have come to understand that theology is actually something you need. Like you really need to know the love of God and know what it's about and how it works. Don't try to content yourself with just a bare minimum understanding of God's love because to rely on it, you have to know it. And there, the, the, Paul talks about the unsearchable depths and riches of his love you will never learn enough about the love of God. Even in heaven, you'll be continually learning because you will be without sin, but you'll still be finite. And that's an amazing thing to think about, right? And then in verse 18, it says, he who fears 
has not been made perfect in love. How does the gospel set us free from fear? Well, it does it by this, drawing us back to the fact that God has dealt with what we should be really afraid of, God's wrath because of our sin, well-deserved. But he dealt with that, that's verse 14. He dealt with that. He sent his son to be the savior of the world. And since God has dealt with the thing that we should actually be afraid of, what else do we have to be afraid of? This is what Paul talks about in Romans 8, where he's almost defiant. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who? It's like one of my favorite verses in Isaiah 44. God says, is there any other rock? I know not one. And if God who knows everything doesn't know of another rock, there is no other rock. There is no other safe, secure place. God has dealt with what we really have to be afraid of. He's called us his children. So what do we have to fear? Uh, Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner has this great line. He says, the fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. I like that. The fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. Now, the fear of God in the Bible is not being afraid of God. You know how I know that? Psalm 130, verse 4. Because there is forgiveness with you, therefore we will fear you. There's forgiveness with him that leads to fear. It leads to reverence. It leads to um, not taking him lightly. The word for glory is the word that means heavy. There's a heaviness to the glory of God. When we treat him lightly, there's no fear of God before our eyes. That's when we're in trouble. The fear of God means to reverence him and connect him to everything. And, it, and, and it's that fear of God that puts all other fears in their place. And then finally, this last verse. And this was very helpful to me when I was thinking at one point, you know, I kind of had decided I was going to ask Wendy out. Still took me about four months to get up the nerve. And at this point, what was I, 31, 32, right? Yeah. I mean, she's the first girl I kissed, but it was not out of holiness. It was out of sheer terror and fear. <laughs> and just like trying to psych myself up, I think I really want to ask this person out, and then being like, well, it probably wouldn't work anyway. And then I'd sort of like almost get there, and then I'd go back, right? Years and years and years. Finally, finally, God just gave me a sense like, because I was wrestling with, what if I ask her out? If I ask her out, what if she says yes? That's frightening. What if she says no? That would suck. So what am I going to do? Like paralyzed. And God finally gave me a sense of, you know, Kevin, I'm big enough for what if. Like quit trying to figure it out and sort of preemptively plan accordingly. And, and honestly, like Wendy and I, we talk about this sometimes even when we were dating, it like felt like we were along for a ride and neither of us was quite in control. And sometimes we'd even have this little, little kind of mock debate, who's really in control and, uh, and sustaining this relationship. There was a sense in which we're being drawn into something um, bigger than ourselves that was beautiful but scary at the same time. But God is big enough for scary. He really is. Romans 8.28, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That means hard things and wonderful things, pain and joy, 
even situations outside of our control, which if we had eyes to see and believe, is absolutely everything in your life. <laughs> um, God is big enough for what if. And that should put to death our fear. Now that doesn't mean that you just go out and be an idiot and be unwise, right? Because your heart still can get trampled on, right? But it doesn't need to be paralyzed in fear. Let me pray.